Well, once a year, good morning, by the way. We've had church already, I think, so uh, we're going to double it up this morning and have more church. So uh, this time of year, usually later in the month, but there's a bunch of reasons that don't matter. We're doing it today, kind of a state of the church, eh, sort of today. But next Sunday morning, we're going to start a brand new series called, Really? you got to say it right. Really? We're going to look at the state of American theology. They do, really? They, they do a, I won't explain it. We're going to do that next week. We're going to start next week. I hope we don't step on any toes, but wear your, wear your steel toe shoes just in case. We're going to look at things that we as Americans, we just, a lot of us assume is true theologically. And so we're going to dig into the scriptures and say, eh, maybe not. Really? So that begins next week. But before we get to that, I wanted to revisit a theme from last fall that I think if we can understand it and, and, and let it become part of our personal lives, it will impact the state of the church in 2023. Back when we dissected a biblical view of true religion, you didn't forget that, did you? One person didn't forget it. Thank you, Brian. We discovered that God requires certain things of his people, and we looked at, at, at a deep dive into Matthew, and, and we did that too, but not in the fall, um, in Micah 6, 8, which says that God's desire for us is, is what? Three things. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. You've slain my heart. We are supposed to do three things. Do justice. Love mercy, walk humbly with our God. And in the section about doing justice, I asked us how we can be a people who are actively involved in doing justice in this world. And we may, I made three suggestions, okay? Number one, we must change the way we think. When we come across texts of scripture, don't assume you know what they're saying because you've heard it so many times. I mean, Luke 4, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Jesus said that. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, or the year of the Lord's favor. Yes, he came to set us free from, from the penalty of sin and death, but we have to open our eyes when we come to a text like that and understand this is how the holiness of God relates to our world and understand how it relates to the sinful abuse of power in our world. So we think differently, come to the text, open our eyes. I encourage you to read When Helping Hurts. In case you forgot, When Helping Hurts is a great book to read. Second thing I said was that we must change what we do. It's not about just what we think, but change what we do. Because at some point, if we claim to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, it needs to be translated in, in how we act and what we do. And I encourage us to do some brainstorming. There's so many needs and injustices in this world. We talked about the refugees we're serving in our own backyard from Afghanistan. We talked about the body people of Nepal. I made a passing comment that we need to do something. All of us need to be involved somehow, but that that ought to be born out of how God has shaped us 
to be. Your passions are not my passions. The causes you believe in are not my causes. And it's to that concept that I want to return this morning. What's my ministry? What am I doing in the body? And then really, what am I doing to do justice? And what should I not be doing? What do I not have to feel guilty about not doing? So the journey begins in this looking at how we should be involved by looking and understanding the creative handiwork of God. Psalm 139 Verse 13 says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Three things about that. I am unique. You are unique. So nobody like us in the world never has been, never will be. We are fearfully, wonderfully made. God doesn't make Xerox copies. We're, we are all original. We've got the same body stuff going on, but, but beyond that, if you search the whole world, you wouldn't find two people with the same fingerprint or, or voice uh, print or footprint. We're unique. Second, I'm wonderfully complex. Some of you are married to people who are wonderfully complex. In fact, sometimes you are so wonderfully complex, you don't even know what you're thinking or doing or why you're doing it. And so we face unique experiences in life as well because we're wonderfully complex and unique. Third, I'm shaped for a purpose. See, God made everything in this world for a purpose. You're not here by accident. You're not taking up space. God made us for a reason. And his loving hand made us exactly the way we are. And then if we add Paul's New Testament thoughts on kind of the same subject, in Ephesians 2.10, he writes, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Hmm. The message puts it this way. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he's gotten ready for us to do. Work we'd better be doing. So we celebrate this morning God's creativity in us. We're a body of many parts. Therefore, we ought to be out doing justice in many different and varying ways. But you've got to be doing something. And so I hope this morning that we unleash to God what he has prepared for us to do. It should be a liberating morning. It's not a guilt trip today. I want us to overview five factors that determine kind of what we should be doing and how that shape that God has made us has, has impacted our lives. There are five parts to my God-given shape. This is point number one. We're finally there. And for a lot of you, you could preach this message yourself, right? Wrong. But, you, I mean, you could if you really, I mean. <laughs> if you've been to class 301, you could. We are a combination of these five different things. Number one, spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, the last half of it says, Each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. 
At least 20 of these are, are mentioned in the New Testament. Spiritual gifts, we get one at the moment of salvation. This isn't your natural talent or abilities. This is a spiritual gift you get from God. And, and every time you do something and you do it well and you enjoy it, you're revealing the giftedness that God has given you. We all have at least one. Second part is the heart. We have, a sh- we have, we have spiritual gifts. We have a heart. It's what drives you. It's what motivates you. We all have different motivations. We all have different drives. There are some things you care about very deeply. There are other things you don't care about as deeply. And those reveal your heart. Philippians 2 verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In the NEB, it says, for it is God who works in you, inspiring both the will and the deed for his own chosen purpose. This is the desire of your heart. What do you love to do? What do you really love to do? What is it that that you think about when there's nothing else to think about? What comes to mind? What do you dream about? You see, God has put those things in our hearts He's put them in our lives. He's given us gifts and a heart, these inborn interests. Third, we have abilities. We have spiritual gifts. We have heart. We have abilities. 1 Corinthians 12, 6. We can can each do different things, yet the same God works in all of us and helps us in everything we do. We all have different abilities. Some of you think you don't have an ability. You got lots of abilities, whether you think you do or not. The the research has said between 500 and 700 different things you have the ability to do. If you, not all people can do this. If you can raise your hand, there's an ability. God says that's how he has shaped us. He's given us these different abilities. Some of you are very interested in computers. Others of you are scared to death of that thing. Some of you have a natural ability with mechanical things. Others of us, not so much. Some of you are good with numbers. Others are good with words. Some are good at speaking. Some are good at at other things. Some can work well with people. Some, not so much. Some of you can do well with music. Some of you can think great ideas. You can take these abstract thoughts and put them all together in a logical format. Some of you have the ability to entertain in your home. Others, not so much. Some of you can cook or draw or or landscape or research or build. We've all got these abilities and we don't have them by accident. A biblical example of how God uses abilities for his glory is in Exodus 31, where they're getting ready to build the tabernacle. And God says, not only have I, God, filled him with my spirit, but I have given him wisdom and made him a skilled craftsman who can create objects of art with gold, silver, bronze, and stone and wood. You've got to gift people to do that kind of thing. These are abilities. He's given us these gifts. He's given us a heart, the basic motivations of life. He's given us spiritual gifts. P, he's given us personality. Some of you have it with a capital P, It's the way you act, it's the way you feel, it's the way you think. Because the root of our personality is how we think. 
because the way you think determines the way you feel and it usually determines outcome. It doesn't need to, but it usually does. Proverbs 4.23 says, your life is shaped by your thoughts. And some of us have seen this with children we have, right? You, you know, sometimes right when they come out, one is cooing and loving and the other's chomping on a cigar ready to go. It's just that way. When the kids are all at home, our table is like, are you kidding me? All these three are mine? They are so different and wonderful. And when they get married, it's even more wonderful. That's all I know. The dynamic is, is complex, but that's how God has put us together. That's how he has shaped us. And he gave it to us for a purpose. We can shape our personalities. It's hard to do, but we can. But we do need to use it for the glory of God. E, experiences. God uses experiences to help to shape us. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all this, and we know that all that happens to us is working for our good if we love God and are fitting into his plans. See, God is organized, he's purposeful in these experiences that come our way in life. And he allows unique things in our life. And he doesn't waste the hurts that we've experienced because it is often out of our greatest pain that we find our way to serve God. Have you ever sat down just to explore the experiences and the history of your life and listen to God that you might discover how he wants you to serve? Five things go into making your shape. Your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experiences. In December, the men's ministry asked Paul Duncan to share his testimony. It was amazing and moving. And so I've asked Paul to give a certain version of that this morning because it ties in to who we are on a very practical level. You're going to learn some things about Paul you didn't know before, which is a good thing. It's good for us to know you. So Paul, come share. You guys are getting a lot of me this morning, so <laughs> chapter two. Um, yeah, he just, Jim wanted me to share a bit of my story as it pertains to my life as a songwriter and musician and that, that journey and some of the opportunities and challenges that came with it and how God has worked through it all. So to go all the way back to the beginning, because we're talking about personality and shaping and all this stuff, I was raised in Nashville, Tennessee from about the age of three. So music was all around me. Uh, both my parents sang in church. My grandfather had been a choir director, and I, I'm not sure how far back that tradition went before him. But it was in my blood, and it was really prevalent in my environment. Um, many of my mom's and my mom and dad's friends back in the 80s were songwriters or producers or music business folks. It was never really talked about as a great idea to do that, but it was everywhere. Um, but I got the bug early. Uh, piano lessons started at age five. I was in my first little musicals and plays around the same time. And some of the first things I remember asking for for my birthday were albums. Um, in fact, I remember coming down to the breakfast table and seeing the Michael Jackson Thriller cassette as my birthday gift the year I was in second grade. Um, is that how a calling starts? I don't know. Words like that are a little too big for me sometimes. But if a calling really means a God-given obsession and that's probably what it was. It seems like I always had a pair of headphones on 
or I was sitting next to the radio with my tape recorder trying to tape my favorite song when it came. Did anybody else do that in the 80s? Now, I was in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, and sometimes on Saturday for a choir rehearsal. So I was surrounded with that as well, but I never really drew a distinction between secular music or sacred music. To me, they were all gifts from God, different songs for different moments and different seasons. I actually still look at it that way. Um, so at the time I'm hearing gospel stuff from my parents like Andre Crouch and the Gaithers. I was hearing a lot of southern gospel like the Imperials and the Cathedrals and then Elvis Presley. And then it's the 80s, so Michael W. Smith and Amory Grant are on Christian radio. And then, but I'm spending most of my time with Prince and George Michael, Duran Duran, Def Leppard, Guns N' Roses. <laughs> Loving all of it. All of it's going into my head, you know. But when I was, about, I was about 14 or 15, I started to really get into the early work of a little-known indie artist. And you guys probably haven't heard of him. He's a guy by the name of Elton John. Um, <laughs> I think he's going to do some things in music, but I was up there in my bedroom, and I was just getting into classic rock radio. That was, that was a, a new format at the time, so I was learning all these new bands from the past. And I heard this song called Rocket Man, and I was like, that's how a song is supposed to sound. And I think that's what happens to a little, a little budding musician. It's something, you, you land on something, and you're like, oh, that's how it's supposed to be done. And I was like, I... I want to learn how to play that. I'd been doing my piano lessons. I was starting to move to play by ear. So I said, I, I want to learn how to play that song. So I went downstairs and I put the headphones on and I didn't stop until I had it. And then I said, I think I want to play everything that this guy has written. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I would spend my allowance. I'd go get a new, a new cassette. I'd pop it in the Walkman. I'd sit at the piano and I'd learn it. And then finally you realize, hey, these guys have tendencies. They're kind of doing the same thing over and over again. I bet I could write one of these. And so at 15, I wrote my first horrible song. <laughs> but around that same time, something else happened while I was sitting in a church pew on a Sunday morning. We had these hymnals. You guys may remember those as well. The cover of the hymnal said, Worship in Song. That was just the title. That was the book. I'd seen that front cover hundreds of times. But for some reason on this Sunday, it just jumped out. Almost like a command. Like a mandate. Like God was like, do this. Worship and song. And uh, on the drive home that day with my parents, I'm sitting in the back seat and I just said, hey, I think I know what I'm going to do with my life. Again, I'm like 15. And they're like, oh, great. You know, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. They're waiting for me to throw out something practical. <laughs> I said, I'm going to make music. Pretty quiet drive home. <laughs> um, but for me, there was no turning back at that point. Um, and that may seem like the part of the story where, quote, God showed up, right? I got this little message. But I would argue that the presence and the hand of God were already at work in every detail that I've shared. I just didn't know it yet. Even the building of an environment, the building of influences. You know, one of the verses that we're all pretty familiar with is Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that's a word to the church in Philippi, but it reveals a lot about the character and the foundational consistency of God. So I feel like we're okay to apply that thing to our individual lives. He's the one who begins, and he's the one who finishes. The question is, what does that mean? 
Where, when, and how does he begin a good work? And what does it mean to finish it? I think it starts in the very beginning. The very beginning of a life. Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Do you think that might have given him some insight, tools, and experience to eventually challenge Egypt's rule over the Israelites? Being on the inside? David's early experiences with wild animals. Don't you think those were pivotal to building the courage that he would need to face Goliath? And we forget about the courage he needed to face Saul as well. The disciples, they came right off the fishing boat to join Jesus. And that hard, frustrating work of fishing, I feel like that was the perfect backdrop to prepare them for what Jesus' ministry required of them. And for me, the God-given musical roots of my environment, they set me up with faith and with fortitude to face a lifetime of ups and downs. And if you know anything about the music business, you know that that is exactly what it involves. Once I got older, I moved to California with the band that I had started in college. And we made our living playing anywhere and everywhere for three years. And then the band broke up. And I got hired by a couple other bands over the next couple years to play guitar or keyboards. And I would tour with those guys until the band would break up, get dropped by their label. And I got to travel. I got to play in some really cool places and meet some really cool people. But I found out again and again what it was like to have it all pulled away from you at a moment's notice. Maybe because somebody at the label got fired or because... Their single hadn't done as well at radio as they thought they might, so they just washed their hands of, of the band and of me. So then each time I also found out what it was like to run out of money. But I found out that no matter where I was, good opportunities, lame opportunities, whatever was going on, I was always running into conversations about God with my fellow musicians. Seekers, runners, people who were hurt, people who were angry. There's a lot of them in the creative world. And I began to realize that for me, a life in music wasn't only about the music I created or played, but it was about the people that it brought into my life. I heard a sermon once that said, you're not an accountant, you're a missionary in an accountant costume. You know, whatever it is that you do for your job, God's got you there for the people you're going to interact with as much as for the work you're going to do, and certainly more than the money you're going to make. Do you guys believe that? See, I began to recognize his presence everywhere, not just in churches, but in clubs and studios. Worship in song started to mean more to me than I ever thought. Well, in 2003, right in the middle of all those days of touring, recording, and working odd jobs, worst construction worker ever, <laughs> worst house painter ever, I worked in the cruise ship music industry. I played piano at a steakhouse. Whatever you could think of, I was doing it all. But right in the middle of all that, I got invited to my first ever writing session for another artist. I'd only been writing songs for myself. It's my first song writing for a project that wasn't my own, and I walked in really, really green. But the song we wrote turned out pretty good. And it actually turned out good enough for this artist to go and get a record deal with it. And then over the coming months, it gets turned out good enough to be picked as her radio single. And then it turned out to be good enough to go to the top 20 on the country chart in 2003. And that for me was lightning striking. That's not how it normally happens. These are different industry, the songwriting world is meant as different industry doors than trying to play in somebody's band. And I had not knocked on all the right doors and I felt like, oh God has just 
He's dropped this on me. He's it's a game changer. He's opening this door. I've arrived. Except those doors closed as quickly as they had opened. It turned out that having a song on the radio wasn't as big of a calling card as I thought it would be. And nobody recorded any of my songs in 2004. Or in 2005. Or 2006. Seven. Eight. Nine. Ten. Seven years. And I kept showing up. I was paying for trips to Nashville. I was paying to record demos. I was reminding my wife, remember 2003? <laughs> I kept trying to learn and get better, but it was really, really hard. And I don't know what you guys know about failure, but failure after success is a whole different thing. And through all this, I'm playing in churches, I'm teaching guitar and piano lessons. And one day, while I'm waiting for a piano student to show up, I found myself in the Bible. And I came across the, the phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Another phrase I'd seen hundreds of times that all of a sudden just popped out of the page. You see, to the musician, pride is no stranger. You have to have a certain amount of confidence to want to be on a platform, to think that your ideas should be heard. But when it's left to its own devices, that confidence can become a raging pride pretty quickly. And when I read that, I thought, oh man, I don't want God to oppose me. That thought terrified me. And I started to realize something that maybe all these closed doors and these, these seven years of futility, maybe they weren't evidence of God's absence, but of his involvement. Maybe his work in this journey was not about doing something through me or with me. Or honestly, what I really want is for him to do something for me. But it was about doing something in me. Keeping me humble. Keeping me close. Maybe even preparing me for something. 2011 brought a glimmer of light. Somebody finally decided to record another one of my songs. And it was going to go to country radio again. And so I excitedly watched this song climb the charts all the way to number 52. I don't know if you know the music business. 52 is not something that you get a plaque for. <laughs> but the really good thing that happened in 2011 is I took the opportunity to fill in one Sunday morning at a church called Peninsula Community Church. Somehow I've tricked them into keeping me around <laughs> from that point. But even as worship leading began to occupy a more central role in my life, I still felt like there was more music for me to create. And in 2012, I heard from a producer, writer that I had met while trying to write country. And he was really involved in the world of Christian and worship music. And he said, would you ever want to join one of my sessions? And I said, yeah. And almost immediately, he and I found a groove. And I started to get a couple of small things recorded. I started to get that momentum back a little bit. And I was hungry and I was driven. And all of a sudden, I was meeting young, brand new artists who were hungry and driven. And one of them was this young artist named Lauren Daigle. Um, and you guys have probably heard that part of my story. But she was just starting out. She had big things ahead of her. After all that working and waiting, within a few years, I was finally seeing some momentum in my songwriting career. I had finally realized the young man's dream of signing a publishing deal at age 40. 
And I had multiple songs recorded on the radio now, and, and the hard, weird, winding road behind me was starting to make a little bit of sense. But I had to wonder, what would have been different if I had heard my music on the radio at age 22? How would I be different if I'd followed up that first country hit with a string of smashes? Would my pride have absolutely swallowed up any part of me that could have been useful? See, I'm starting to think that the good work that God is faithful to complete doesn't have anything to do with my career. It's about my character. The fight against pride, the preparing of a heart that he can use, the understanding of what his presence and his involvement actually means. The music industry has certainly been a tool for that. And so have the other many, many obstacles that have come my way. I don't think God is nearly as concerned about what I accomplish in music or upon a platform as he is with who I am while I'm doing it. My heart, my head, my motivation, the way I treat people around me in the process. In fact, now I find myself actually being able to mentor young writers and artists that are coming up. Not because of what I know of success, but because of what I know of failure. And I'm still learning because I write about 150 songs a year and about 20 get recorded. So most of my life is still failure. <laughs> most of the answers I get are still no. But I'm still learning because with a calling, I don't, I don't believe that a calling is about getting somewhere, or about reaching a point. Because I don't think God pointed me to a destination. I want, remember this part. He didn't point me to a destination. He invited me to a road. And the road is everything. All I can say now when I look at it all is that I'm really grateful. Because it wasn't so long ago that I just wanted somebody to record a song, any song. And now it's, it's hard for me to make sense of the fact that I'm... It's about 20 or 25 a year that get recorded and released. They've been played everywhere from the radio to Red Rocks, the Greek Theater, Carnegie Hall, the Grand Ole Opry. And I serve church families that are supportive and patient with me. And God keeps giving me chances to worship in song. And what's amazing is, even with all that he's allowed me to experience, I know that his good work isn't done yet. There's still too much failure left for me for him to be done. <laughs> Inside and outside of music, though, he's still using my job, my family, my ups and my downs to continue to shape my heart for whatever he's got for me. And like always, he's training me on the job. Thank you. It's powerful. The shape we have... Shall I make a confession? I don't know that I've ever even heard the song Rocket Man. <laughs> I know I've just put a nail in your... Yeah, okay, I'll cut you close with it. <laughs> different shapes. Different... Sorry, I must... We only listened to Sandy Patty when I was growing up. <laughs> so there you go. You need to care about your shape. That's point number two, and I'll be quick. Why? Two reasons. Because your shape reveals God's purpose for us. Okay? It's when we look and see at, at our spiritual gifts and our heart and our abilities and our personality and our experiences. It's out of that that we discover what we can do. Architects have a phrase that says form follows function, but in the spiritual life, function follows form. In other words, we got to figure out how God shaped us, then we'll know our purpose. 
I figure out how he wired me and the experiences he's given me, then I've got a pretty good clue as to what he expects of me to do. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says, I knew you before I, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Jeremiah had a life purpose before he was born. I'm a spokesman for Israel. That's what God has in mind for you. But you don't always have to do God's plan. God doesn't force you to do it. So don't waste your life. Don't blow it. You can do all kinds of things. But what has God shaped you to do? I think many people are frustrated and lonely and depressed and anxious because they're trying to do the very thing and be something or somebody that God really never intended them to be. Listen to God. Devana did 20 years of worship leading. But that's, you ask her today, that's not, that's not what she should do. She's passionate about children, if you didn't get that yet. <laughs> but your shape reveals the purpose of God for you. And number two, you should care because my shape equips me to serve him. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created a new in Christ Jesus. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things he planned for us long ago. Get on board with God, with what he's doing. There's a mission that we have on this planet. And we should begin today, evaluate today, what is my shape? What am I, should I be doing? If I need to change, change. Don't blow it all of your life, at least. Start over. And as I can conclude, I want to revisit that sermon from November. We asked, I said, if we're going to do justice, we have to change what we think. We have to change what we do. And the third point was we must ask God to change our heart. We've got to look at, at, the, at where we are and what God has done. And as we live in this world of injustice, and it's overwhelming, we could talk about, you know, all kinds of things. The, the killing fields in Rwanda or the red light districts in, in an Asian city. How important it is to rescue as many young girls from sex trafficking. A host of issues involving justice locally, internationally. We're going to explore those locally on, on January 22nd. But as we talk about the commands to do justice, it forces us to ask some questions. What sort of God do we really believe in? Do we believe in a God who is only concerned with my individual salvation? Then fine, we can take our little salvation, fold it up, and be nice the rest of our lives. But he is a God of justice and justification. We cannot leave this gaping hole in what we believe the gospel is and leave everybody out of it once we got it. What kind of a God do we serve? Second, what sort of a creature do we think a human being is? Do we really believe in the unique value of each and every person? Do we really believe they've all been made in the image of God? Because if that's true, what does that say about abuse? What does that say about torture? What does it say about rape and racism? And the grinding poverty which dehumanizes people. Isn't that an insult to the God who made them? How has God shaped us to deal with those issues? 
third question we have to ask is, what sort of person do we think our Savior is? The Savior who, when faced with the death of his friends, he, he snorted really in anger over what death does in the relationship between friends, but who could come then and grieve at his tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. Are we going to be indignant toward evil and compassionate toward its victims? And fourth, what sort of community do you think the church is meant to be? What are we meant to be as the state of the church? Are we just indistinguishable from the world? Because we're just going to accommodate our, th our thinking and our ministry to this culture of indifference and injustice? Aren't we supposed to penetrate the world with salt, like salt and light? Aren't we supposed to change that world because of the salt that we, we taste like and, and the light that we bring? God has shaped us to be salt and light. Isn't God shaping us as individuals to do that? What do we really believe about Jesus, about God, about human beings, and about the church? You gotta think biblically. That's how we expose ourselves to the challenge and to change in this world. That change for social justice begins with a trickle. And perhaps the trickle today is just examine your shape. Maybe God has shaped me to be with children and I should go get involved in children's ministry. Maybe it's youth, maybe it's whatever. Maybe it's, it's sewing or cooking or whatever. Are you serving in harmony with how God made you? Are you doing something that you actually enjoy, that motivates you? Are you even serving? We've all been made with a shape. Let's figure out what that shape is and let's get on with the task. Don't waste your shape. That's my plea today. It's very simple. Don't waste what God and the story God has put and made in your life. Let me pray. Father, thank you today. Thank you for how you are weaving us together with such varied and different backgrounds that we might each be equipped to be a change agent in this church, within our fellowship, and in the world. May our passions in the year ahead really make a difference as we rub shoulders with each other, as we, as we listen to each other, as we share with each other, and as we serve you and your kingdom together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>